You're listening to The Healthy Sensitive. Hey everyone, and welcome to The Healthy Sensitive, a podcast for highly sensitive people, introverts, creatives, who are want to live their best lives in a not always so very sensitive world. I'm Leah Burkhart, your hostess, and today what I want to talk about is anger. Uh, it's it's one of those things that was very serendipitous. I had a, an experience of anger myself, and then Anytime I experience an emotion that's uncomfortable, my go-to reaction pretty closely after that is to get real curious about it and go, ooh, that's interesting, because I'm a, I'm a nerd. Um, and that's one thing that's that was enough to inspire me to write a blog on the subject, uh, but sometimes, that often is enough to kind of satisfy the itch. But then it kept coming up in my conversations with others, and in, and in particular, in my appointments with clients. So, um, you know, this discomfort with anger. So I thought, well, clearly this is a thing. And I imagine it's not just highly sensitive people, but it appears to be the case that HSPs that I know at least are especially, hmm, maybe I should say not enamored with anger. (laughs) Anyway, so what I'm doing, I kind of want to go in layers with all of this. I want to start by talking about emotions because anger, as we all know, or have come to understand is an emotion. So what is an emotion, just in general, really broadly? It turns out even that question can be very complicated. Um, I know I've spoken about some of these names before, so maybe if you've been listening to this podcast a while, that'll sound familiar. But the first person I drew from is uh, Lisa Barrett, uh, Lisa Feldman Barrett, to be precise. She wrote the book, How Emotions Are Made. And when speaking about emotions and trying to describe them in a way that, you know, she's not just doesn't just have a PhD in psychology, but uh, is also a neuroscientist, because why settle for just one? So when she was describing an emotion, uh, and this also comes directly from a YouTube video that she put forth. So uh, so they're built by your brain as you need them in a way that is very specific to the situation. For example, fear is not a thing with a single event with a single facial expression. Fear is a group of instances or episodes that vary from one another, that vary depending on what's required. Sometimes in fear, you'll smile, cry, scowl. Sometimes your heart rate will go up. Sometimes it will come down. Sometimes you'll run away. Sometimes you will approach, attack, or faint. The physiology of your body is preparing your body to take an action. These are a set of highly variable events when your brain is att- that your body your brain is attempting to make sense of. So your brain makes emotions the same way it makes any event or makes sense of any event rather. Its job, remember, as if you know about brains, is really to regulate the body. It's sort of like the accountant of your body. So it determines where energy goes depending on what part of your body needs that energy. So an emotion is occurring when your brain has made sense of a series of sensations in your body in relation to the world in a particular way. Uh, The word that's used for this process, by the way, is interoception. And there's also a link that I provide in the notes that talks about this concept. So interoception, it's what helps you understand and feel what's going on inside of your body. 
So for instance, you know that if your heart is beating fast or if you need to breathe more deeply, like if your heart is beating fast, you'll need to breathe more deeply. Um, You'll be able to tell if you need to use the bathroom, if you have good interoception, you can determine, oh, I know that sensation. That's me needing to pee. Well, interoception is also what we use to identify our emotions. Like we're picking up on sensations and then our brain tries to classify those sensations in a way and in a particular way. And that's maybe the tricky thing about emotions is they don't have a universal stamp. So, but yet at the same time, we all create a language to help better understand emotions so that we can communicate more effectively. So this is part of why having a greater vocabulary for emotions is linked with emotional intelligence because the more nuanced our language becomes, the better we can group sensations in a way that provides increasing specificity. So that's all coming from Lisa Feldman Barrett's work. Um, If you have questions on that, please don't hesitate to reach out. I know that's getting a little in the wonky weed area, but I guess the short version of it is to say this. Emotions are umbrellas we use to classify a series of sensations that occur in our body. There you go. (laughs) So what is anger then? Anger, and this is coming from the APA, uh, it's an emotion characterized by antagonism towards someone or something you feel has deliberately done you wrong. Anger can be a good thing. It can give you a way to express negative feelings, for example, or it can motivate you to find solutions to problems. So I want to back up a little bit here and describe what it was that caused me anger. Um, it's not going to be shocking or terribly insightful necessarily, but just so it, to provide some context, I, uh, I've did a podcast, even I've written blog articles about how it's important to be discerning about what we take in, what information we take in, <laughs> but I got a text message, uh, from a gentleman that I'm seeing. And he said, uh, Hey, you know, like it was a very nice text message. Hey, hello. Good morning. And it, he says, Oh, by the way, did you see? President Trump's tweet. Uh, evidently, he wants to postpone the election. And, you know, you read into it, um, and it turns out, I mean, yes, he, he sort of casually put in a tweet. Well, maybe we should, you know, I mean, COVID's clearly making it very difficult for us to organize the election. And, you know, with having to, we may therefore need to use more uh, in like mail-in ballots, and those are so. I mean, it's so easy to be fraudulent with those. So you know, maybe we should just postpone? Question mark. And then, of course, later he backtracks and says, "No, no, no, I don't want to postpone. I just think you know, mail-in ballots are are a shady way of doing this. You know, it's too easy to be. It would rig the election in essence. Which I can't explain." The, I mean, when I just, the level of fury that it rose up in me, uh, I, I want to stop for a second and remove whatever judgments that any listeners here might have around, oh, is Trump good or is he bad? I just want to stop and I'll explain why my anger came in in a minute. But first, I just want to explain the sensation itself. So my gut churned, my heart rate went up. I started feeling heat, heat just flooding my whole system so ordinarily I run cold all the way you know my fingertips get cold my little tootsies getting cold and uh, no every part of my body was just radiating heat and it was uh it feels almost like getting hijacked it's a flooding it's uh very very energizing so 
as I'm feeling these sensations, my it's a very, very uncomfortable experience for me. What's nice about it having been political, though, is when in something that's that far removed from my life or from my day-to-day life and certainly from my my, my people, my, my son, my relationships, my close-knit relationships, it's not so close to home that I can't see it all. So that was part of why this was extremely useful. It's, it's far and away, it's out there somewhere. It's something much more abstract even in my mind. And so that gave me a little space to get curious about this thing. What is this anger? Wow, this is really fascinating. Huh, I wonder what's going on. And that also gave me the space to really start to wonder, okay, well, what is anger exactly? And why is it that I'm feeling it with this? So it turns out uh, that anger, and this is actually coming from Mark Brackett and his book, Permission to Feel. He was trying to describe what it is that makes anger anger versus, say, frustration. And he writes, anger is a response to an injustice. Frustration is a response to a blocked goal. So this gives you some idea of, you know, they're both very heated, very energizing, but they, what makes anger distinct often has to do with the trigger point of it. So, and he also distinguishes anger from disappointment. He says, you know, anger is what you feel as a response to injustice. Disappointment is how you feel when you're responding to um, an unmet expectation. So these are the nuances that he's trying to tease out in his book. And part of what he's advocating for in his book, by the way, is how important it is to feel all of it. He in no way, shape or form, much as with most psychologists, advocates that we just try and remove anger or that anger is necessarily toxic. So, okay, great. (laughs) Um, How's that going to help me? (laughs) So now I want to back up then and, and, and consider, this is how I started to understand, well, okay, how can I be sure that what I'm feeling is anger? Is it really, an, is it a blocked goal or is it uh, an unmet expectation or is it really and truly a sense of injustice that I'm feeling? And it was, and here's why. Uh, I really don't personally care if one is a Republican, Libertarian, Socialist, Communist, Liberal, Democrat, I don't care what word you use to describe whatever your political affiliation is. I'm very attached to my home and the system that I've grown up in. And I've had this, I mean, it's, I I do know some amount of history. And I know, for example, that there were a number of experiments done to indicate and show just how easily human beings can sort of fall into the trappings of an authoritative system. Um, and they've shown it in little micro examples. I think the prison experiment was one example where Stanford students were given different roles. Some were prisoners, some were prison guards, and they showed how quickly the prison guards became damn near abusive. And these were well-adapted college students. They also showed there was an experiment done, and for many of you who've ever heard this would probably know as well, um, or who were interested in psychology would probably have stumbled across this experiment. There were actors who were hired to sit in chairs that were uh, supposedly hooked up to some like electrical radiation device, like a little electrical zap. In fact, they were not hooked up to anything, any electrical impulse machine thing. There was nothing that was really happening to them. 
But that's not what was told to the students coming into the experiment. The students who came in, or I don't even know that they were all necessarily students, but the, the, those who came into the experiment were told that the experiment was trying to get a sense of whether or not pain, specifically that which comes from like an electrical shock, might help trigger someone's memory. And so these students are all, they push a button every time someone answers the question correctly or incorrectly. So if it's correct, nothing is done. Incorrect, you know, there goes the zap. And what these, uh, what do you call folks that are in a study? It's not respondents, subjects. What the subjects were told is that if the person got it wrong, they were to just continue to increase the intensity of the shock. Once again, no shocks were actually being given, but that's not what these subjects were told. The actors were acting as though they were getting these shocks. So the experiment commences, and at first, the little shocks are just enough that you might feel, again, that's not no shocks were had, but they acted as though it was the same kind of shock you would feel at the shopping mall when you touch something, you know, that, like, oh, I got shocked. Uh, but over time, if the, if the actor kept answering incorrectly, the student was to keep increasing the intensity. And it got to a point where it was pretty clear, based on the actor's responses, that the pain was becoming excruciating. So the subject would look to the experiment lead and say, well, what am I supposed to do now? I mean, when do I stop this? And the lead said nothing except that something like the, the rules of the experiment say that you need to continue. And that was enough for many students or subjects to continue for a a long time. And what it was indicating to those looking on the macro of all of this is, wow, this is how easily swayed people are to authority. This is how people respond to hierarchy. So knowing this, I'm not suggesting that Trump is or is not a wannabe dictator. I don't even want to go there. All I'm saying is... I'm very attached to a democratic process because I know it's delicate and fragile and I know how hard and like the founders of the nation worked to craft something that would be resistant to an authoritative dictator being able to amass too much power. Um, if you're curious, by the way, about you know, looking for someone who might be able to lend some insight into autocracy, uh, Surviving Autocracy is an excellent book. And she does a fabulous job of talking about, you know, how presidents over time, Democrat as well as Republican, have gradually started to amass more power or or sort of condense, consolidate more power in the executive branch, each president doing a little bit more, and how it's become increasingly easy for presidents to, again, consolidate more power. And so she's, it's nice because it's not just, oh, this one dude in this one instance did this horrible thing. It's... No, it's, it's been a gradual process, and now here we are. And this is now the threat that's looming. We may be in a situation where someone could consolidate power in an unhealthy way. And that was what, to me, felt like was, was happening. It's like this petulant child who's seeing the numbers and seeing that perhaps he might lose and saying, well, uh, we should just delay democracy. You know, who cares about that little thing? that we're calling an election. I mean, no big deal. And I just was furious. It turns out I'm a patriot. I love my country. 
And do I really think that if Trump won versus if Biden won, that there'd be this grand difference in terms of the future of our policy? I don't know. That's, but that's not the point for me. I value the process. So what I want to have is faith. You know, someone even asked me, do you think it would be better if Biden were president than if Trump were? And my response was yes. And I have my reasons for that being my response. But one of the biggest reasons that whoever wins, I want it to have been due to an electorate, like the the standard democratic process. I didn't love that Trump won, but I I felt safe enough in the fact that he did in fact win. I didn't love that it was there was some it was pretty clear that there was some messing around with our democratic system by the Russians that doesn't doesn't feel great but at the end of the day people voted and they voted in Trump and so when I some of my fellow liberals would get together and you know complain about Trump oh he's horrible he's the worst ever and blah, blah, blah. it's like yeah 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 I get it but we lost like move on <laughs> it's not that big of a deal he's not trying to you know drive us to the ground and make us the worst you know I mean Personally, I don't think he's done an exceptionally good job, but he nevertheless won an election, period. And that's been enough for me to just stand back and say, okay, well, he may or may not be the leader we need, but he is the leader we deserve. There it is. But if whether it had been Obama or Bush or Clinton, or here we are with Trump, any person who had the audacity, the nerve to stand up and say, mm, yeah, well, I don't really think that mail-in ballots are valid, so let's just delay the election. When, especially given that he's, it's been proven he's used mail-in ballots at least three times in three separate elections. So, yeah. Anyway, so then, why might this be useful I'm using this again for context because, you know, one of my clients in talking about anger, hers was just, it was, was different. It wasn't politically oriented. It was in a relationship. And she said her partner had yelled at her and she's a highly sensitive person uh, like myself. And so HSPs tend not to love conflict anyway. And they really don't like a lot of, they, they don't like to be put on the spot and having to respond too quickly because what happens in the brain of an HSP and Elaine Aaron actually talks at length about this. Um, in fact, I'll quote her in a section from just a moment. But HSPs don't like anger. They tend to be even more uncomfortable with it than others. And that is, which is interesting because nobody seems especially enamored with the emotion. And so what happens in the brain of a highly sensitive person is that when there's an activating emotion like anger, they quickly go into trying to process it in the I'm going to use the word higher only because Elaine Aaron does the higher parts of the brain. So they immediately try and go into the prefrontal cortex and start chewing on and processing what they're feeling and thinking. And because they're trying to develop a, a, a response, that's just that processing mechanism is what lights up in their particular brain. That's fine. Again, 20% of people do it this way. No big deal. Um, but in her case, she, in this particular person's case, she'd had enough experience with, anger that was toxic that she just she was not having it and so then she expressed anger in response and you know yelled loud enough to say no I will not have you yelling at me that's not an option if this is what you want I'm out period and it took them a while to recover but they did and in her conversation with me 
she sort of said, well, you know, now I'm a little fearful. I, I, I don't know how can I, I do a lot of meditation and I do a lot of mindfulness practices. I'm, I'm fearful that that might come up again, which I found intriguing. It's like, because her anger expressed the way that it was expressed seemed to result in productive, a productive conversation. So is anger something that we should even really be fearful of? Well, and there we go. There's maybe the real question. So I went looking around to, to hear from a number of voices on the topic of anger. Uh, the first one, uh, the Dalai Lama. I figured he's a pretty chill dude. <laughs> Let's talk to the Dalai Lama about anger. What does he have to say? And he writes, generally, we can define destructive emotions as those states which undermine our well-being by creating inner turmoil, thereby undermining self-control and depriving us of mental freedom. Within this, it is also possible to distinguish between two subcategories, those emotional states that are destructive in themselves, such as greed, hatred, or malice, and those states such as attachment, anger, or fear, which only become destructive when their intensity is disproportionate to the situation in which they arise. So in essence, what the Dalai Lama is saying is, hey, look, emotions are, there. no emotion is inherently good or bad. It's just a question of discernment. Is the thing that you're responding to, is, is your response to your environment congruent with the environmental change that you're seeing? So he, for example, seems to champion anger in that, it, or not champion it, but he, he argues that it's useful in so much as it helps energize us to act. And if our anger is proportionate to the situation, our action will probably come from a discerning place and the energy behind it will be useful, not destructive. But if the response that we give is not proportionate to the situation, well, now it's become destructive. It's the same concept as, you know, taking a jackhammer to put a hole in the wall so you can hang up a painting. Jackhammers are not inherently good or bad, but it's just disproportionate to what you need to achieve. <laughs> you, you just need a hammer. <laughs> like, um, so that's not that level of energy wasn't required. And so now you've done something destructive. Same concept. So I go further into Todd Koshton's work. Uh, he... He's, he wrote the book, The Upside to Your Dark Side. He also wrote the book, Curious? Question mark. So very interesting uh, individual who covers topics that I find to be fascinating. And when he describes anger, he says, uh, you can think of anger as a courage enhancer. If you feel that someone is stepping in your way and obstructing your goals, the experience of anger motivates you to take a step forward as opposed to taking a step back. So anger in and of itself is definitely a psychological tool that is valuable and for a number of reasons. That's, in essence, what he's arguing. He's saying, you know, and he goes further to get more specific. At one point in one of his books, he talks about how in relationships, and specifically he was referring to a number of relationships where uh, you had a husband and wife or, or heterosexual romance, and you saw abuse or behavior that could have been construed as bordering on abusive. And then the response, when it was, when the response to it was immediate anger of no, boom, you will not do that. The behavior changed more quickly versus when there wasn't any anger expressed, it wasn't as clear that it was a non-negotiable, that it needed to stop. In essence, then anger is an excellent way to cultivate boundaries. And so now encircling circling back on this and, and bringing it for HSPs, 
Elaine Aaron talks about anger. She said, I once asked HSPs in a survey whether they tended to be less angry than others, and their answers did not indicate a difference. That was a big relief. And, and she writes, it's a relief, as I think we HSPs need our anger to maintain our boundaries. Just as I said, boundaries are important. And I've done a number of episodes on boundaries, but you know, if you have questions on that, don't hesitate to reach out. Uh, but I imagine that compared to others, most of the time we process the situation before we express our anger. Not always, of course, and occasionally a spontaneous outburst can even be a good thing. But down-regulating anger, quote-unquote, often takes you closer to your ultimate goal of getting what you want because you pause long enough to notice what is going on and consider the best strategy. So in other words, what she's saying here is what H, you know, HSPs don't seem to have more or less anger than the average person, but where they're distinct is the way they process it. So anger, like fear, is generally designed to create a swift response. When we are angry, we HSP swiftly start thinking of what we want to say, write, or do. (laughs) So it's not that we swiftly respond. Here's another distinction. HSPs feel anger much the same as others. It's just that their go-to response then is to swiftly start thinking about it, not necessarily swiftly act. We rush to process it. The more time we leave for that, the better our ultimate action very useful to wait 24 hours, for example, before responding to criticism. But you probably already do that because you have had some of these experiences. So maybe A, the criticism was justified, but you could only see that after you got over the shame and defensiveness of it. B, it was not about you, but the other person's stress that was or complex. C, you misunderstood what was said. Or D, the person felt ashamed and cleared things up or apologized before you had to say a thing. And it was good that you didn't. So this is really interesting to me because I was recently in a relationship with someone who it just drove him crazy that I didn't express anger on the spot. Now, I felt anger on the spot any number of times when he would do things that made me uncomfortable whenever he was crossing a boundary or whenever I had some sense of perceived injustice. But frequently, I would have to walk away from it, digest it, and it might take a day, maybe even two, before I'd be able to come back and say, okay, I want to talk about this thing that happened. And for him, that felt very much like a snake in the grass. You know, a, okay, why can't you just respond to it in the moment? And it was, he also sort of made the case that, you know, like if a dog does something wrong, you don't wait two days for it. You, you immediately respond. Why are you doing that to me? Which I think is a valid point. But on the flip side of it, this is how highly sensitive people seem to process. They seem to need that time. And you, that makes sense. Like you, you want a person who feels things more intensely than the average individual to step back for a second and really reflect, wait a second, all I know right now is that I'm feeling really potent and powerful sensations in my body. So there's that, oh dear, what's that called? Here's that interoception again. Again, I'm reading sensations in my body, but wait, are these sensations going back to what the Dalai Lama said? proportionate to the situation because that happens for me like I I feel tremendous joy I feel palpable anger (laughs) I feel you know deep and profound sadness yeah I 
I, I don't know. I'm sure everybody has the, the capacity for that. It's just when I use my vocabulary to describe my experience, I often appear, to, I, it, it just seems to me like I'm using more intense language. So my assumption, therefore, is that perhaps I'm feeling things a bit more intensely than the average person is. That's an assumption. I can only know my experience. I can't know anyone else's. But based on the language I use versus that which others use, it appears to me to be true. That when I'm feeling things, I'm feeling them on on a level of intensity that's greater, which in looking at Elaine Aaron's research seems to match up. So there you have that. And given that I know that, I'm much more inclined to be more sort of standoffish about, especially with anger, because if I feel it that intensely, well, I may or may not be feeling the emotion proportionate to the situation like maybe the experience I'm having is strong but that doesn't mean that the situation warrants the expression of what I'm feeling in that moment that's my take at least and what her research indicates is something that lines up and syncs with that so if you my dear listener are a highly sensitive person and others around you are getting frustrated with you because you're taking too long to process or they feel like you're you're sort of amassing a lot of grievances before finally bringing it to the table and they think that's a snake in the grass move uh maybe try and bring this research to them and say hey listen i'm not trying to be sneaky i'm not trying to to hold grudges i'm really trying to process and be clear when i come to you i want to make sure that what i deliver is as close to the appropriate level of response as i can get I want what you hear to be clear and uh, maybe not rational because emotions are rarely rational, but uh, discerning, like yeah, not just um, clear. And I, I can easily guide you from this is what happened. This is how it felt for me when it was going on. This is what I want to change in the future. That's hard to do in the moment of anger. Like it often that takes a bit more processing. Uh, I also, by the way, looked into, because I seem to have such a challenge with anger, I looked into Elaine Aaron's, uh, one of her other books. She writes, uh, she wrote a book called The Undervalued Self. For those who might not know, Elaine Aaron, by the way, is sort of considered the the primary researcher on the trait, highly sensory processing sensitivity, especially as it's been found in humans. So FYI. Um, So she wrote The Highly Sensitive Person. She's written on topics that include um, The Highly Sensitive Person in Love. And she also wrote The Undervalued Self. Now, she made the case that, you know, there's a number of reasons why people uh, might undervalue themselves. And there are defense mechanisms that people can use in order to uh, well, avoid, <laughs> look at me again, it's a defense mechanism, uh, to avoid being a whole person, in essence. It's like, it, it, how do I put this? Many people undervalue themselves, and they don't realize that they're even doing it. If they did know, they would change it. But they've gotten very good at hiding it even from themselves. And so there are six what she calls self-protections that we use from having to look at the way that we're undervaluing ourselves. One is minimizing, so making light of or denying your role in a negative situation or what can be expected of you in a positive one. A positive one. Another one is blaming, accusing others of being unfair in order to explain a failure when in fact there is no unfairness. Uh, Another is non-competing, denying any interest or perhaps even awareness of ranking and striving to link at all costs. 
Overachieving, so working endlessly to reach a high rank yet never feeling good enough. Inflating, feeling you are the best or should be seen that way and doing almost anything to keep yourself in the spotlight. And then projecting, denying your own flaws while seeing them in others when they are not there. Um, I don't know to what extent anger really plugs into any one of these. But what I can say is, you know, she has a series of questions you can respond to. Well, it's not questions, it's statements. And you you identify whether you, you know, true or false. And your answers to that, those statements, help to indicate whether you tend to use any one of those protections, those six protective features. And out of curiosity, I went ahead and took the test. And again, if you're interested in reading more about this concept, and again, the concept is, number one, do you undervalue yourself? If you do, are you aware of the fact that you do? (laughs) Um, Because many of us are not. Most of us who were aware would probably start fixing it. And then in what way do you protect yourself from that awareness? And anyway... In my case, uh, I kind of went in, I was feeling pretty cocky. Just like, look at me go, man. I feel like none of these comments are really me. Or to the extent that they are, I I, I feel like they're healthy responses. Uh, and turns out, I am heavy duty in the non-competing self-protection. So it turns out, yes, I do undervalue myself. And this was feedback that that partner I told you about just a few moments ago, uh, he had some valid feedback uh, in that area. He sort of was saying, listen... If you never fight, if you never get angry, on some level, what you're communicating is you're not uh, invested, which I think is valid in much the same way as if one never is expresses anger, they may never um, they may never cultivate a healthy boundary. So with non-competing self-protection, just to read a little bit of this, it's a section of it. Uh, when we use the non-competing self-protection, We unconsciously try to deny the very existence of power. We fear the entire issue of ranking because it raises the possibility of a terrible defeat. This self-protection is not about a conscious religious or moral decision to rank one's own needs lower than all others in order to serve the common good. That would not be a self-protection, but an altruistic value. Nor is non-competing about accepting a low rank to please people, as that implies accepting ranking itself. Instead, the non-competing self-protection is not only about not seeing ranking, but about feeling you are above it. If you are using this self-protection, you may say, who's keeping score about a thing like that? Not me. I'm the one who keeps things peaceful around here. I just don't care what others think. I don't want any credit. I just want to be helpful. Alas, as much as you try to deny ranking with this self-protection, others may see you as simply willing to accept the lowest rank. Hence, they may pile more work on you, let you do all of the chores, and ignore your ideas. Another potential problem with using the non-competing self-protection is that you will hesitate to exert power over others when it is in fact your job to do so. Due to your lack of leadership, all sorts of abuses and conflicts can happen amongst those you are trying to help. And so, for me, in looking at my discomfort with anger and linking it with this minor little detail and by the way I want to take a minute and read uh, if you might yourself be kind of falling in this camp there was a number of comments that would likely uh, be related so let's see on competing do, 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 do. so if I had to choose I would find it better to spend the rest of my life making others happy than making myself happy that's one sign Uh, No matter how much trouble someone causes me, if I were perfect, I would still respond with love. The next one is, 
Uh, I always want to cause others as little trouble as possible. Next one would be, I'll do almost anything to avoid a conflict. Uh, next one is, others tell me that I let people take advantage of me. And finally, when I am part of an ongoing group or organization, I refuse to pay attention to the politics. So you can see how, I mean, initially, some of those might sound kind of nice. I want to make people happy. I don't want to get into the politics. I mean, who's really keeping score anyway? But it can be very uh, ineffective, especially in leadership. I remember in my case, when I had, I took a leadership role in the previous organization that I worked in, the level and the degree to which I had to be more forceful was substantial. And I did do it, but it was extremely uncomfortable. And I had just had to understand the fact that I need to do this thing because if I don't, like, no, that, it's my job to defend my people, like the people who are working under me. It's not their job to defend themselves. I'm the one getting the paycheck, so I need to do it. But I hated it. It was extremely, as I say, uncomfortable. I happen to be someone who absolutely avoids conflict. Uh, most recently in a, uh, God, it was just a very bizarre situation. I, uh, became infatuated with someone who was a coworker of a friend. And then that got really messy because my coworker became very uncomfortable with it. And then it seemed to be the case that perhaps this person may even have been infatuated with my, with, with my friend. So it just went on and on. And I, it, it, all of a sudden it turned into this really crazy game of telephone and it was going around in circles. And so I just removed myself going, Oh no, I'm not getting involved in any of this. I'm so out. And Part of that was coming from a place of this, you know, undervaluing of myself. Although part of it too was coming from a place of there's no way I could move forward with this dynamic in a way that wouldn't cause someone a whole lot of suffering, including myself. Like it was just so fraught with complexity, unnecessary complexity. So I am pleased with the way that I behaved on some level, but this gentleman that, you know, there was a kind of infatuation building did comment and say, you know, because he said, well, is this still an issue? Are people still coming to you and calling you about this and going on? I said, no, it's now it's not an issue at all. No one, I, the gossip has all stopped. And he said, yes, but it's because you backed out. And I understand why, but there is a measure of pain that comes with that for me, at least, you know, he was being honest and I have to appreciate that. And there are situations in life where backing off, we may think that we're doing something kind when in fact we may not be. In this case, the more I review it, the more I'm still sure that I made the right move. But there are times in my life when I've backed off and perhaps that wasn't the right move. So for example, there were times when maybe I should have made a bid for a promotion that I didn't because uh, I just didn't want to go there. And then conversely, and again, this was back in the previous organization I worked in, I did push and say, I'm just putting my hat in the ring and saying I'm interested. I want the job, period. And to do that took a measure of energy. It took a measure of a willingness to be uncomfortable. I obviously didn't go in and ask for that job from a place of anger. But nevertheless, anger can be helpful. Let's say I wanted, like if I, if I had been passed up over and over and over, you know, I can express anger in healthy ways, but I first have to feel it to begin with. I need, again, it's a, the, the it's a response to an injustice. 
And just like with the initial example that I gave at the start of this podcast, I mean, responding to a tweet by a man who has tremendous power and who is now saying he was just kind of putting out there, you know, maybe, I don't know, we should think about, you know, just saying, like, delaying the election. Just a thought. That should make me angry. That should make any American angry. That's a, because that's a boundary. It's a boundary we've written laws to try and protect. And my response to that is appropriate. It's appropriate for the situation. So now then, great, fine. In what ways might my anger be useful? So this is now coming from an article written by Mosh, Mosh, Mosh Ratson. I hope I'm pronouncing it right, but it's spelled first name Mosh, Moshi, M as in mom, O-S-H-E, last name Ratson. And again, don't know about pronunciation, but R, A, T as in Tom, S-O-N as in Nancy. And he writes in Good Therapy on his blog article, uh, the 16 different ways in which anger can be helpful. One, it promotes survival. Again, it's, it's pushing me to step forward instead of moving back. It's pushing me to take a closer look at politics and sort of think, ooh, I need to pay attention to this. Because as an American citizen, if something like our election can be postponed, that makes a whole lot of other aspects of my government less strong. Like there's, there's it, it means, it's a signal to me that there are other foundational components of the system I'm living in that may be fragile or may be capable of uh, disruption. And so the anger I'm feeling is partially from a place of survival. Like if that can be changed, what comes next? The snowball effect. Number two, the discharge of it can help calm the system. So immediately when this started happening, I started doing research on well, what's going on in the world and why am I feeling what I'm feeling and so on. And then I wrote a blog article about it. And it was so cathartic to write this article in the midst of my anger. Um, provides a sense of control. And it does. When, the, when anger is flooding the system, it's energizing. There's a sense of, oh, I got this. Let's go, boys. Let's, like, all right, let's get this party started. Uh, and the control, of course, is illusory. I mean, no one has real control per se, but it can give, it can flood the system with the the sense of that, which can feel uh, oddly soothing. It energizes us is the next one, which, as I've just mentioned, it floods the system with adrenaline and cortisol, which is energy giving. Um, anger motivates us to solve problems. So if I see the problem of, oh crap, there's this guy who's in a position of power who's playing, toying with, a, like putting on a tweet, no less, that maybe we could just delay an election. What? Uh, that would motivate me to start looking for, okay, well, how do I be a part of the solution? Um, anger makes us aware of injustice. Well, I'll say. Uh, anger drives us toward our goals. Well, in this case, I'm not sure what my goal is per se. I, I don't know that I would say my goal is to make sure that Biden wins. But my goal is absolutely to assure and to encourage anyone who's in a position to speak on this in a potent way. So say my representative, uh, that the system remains intact because I'm very attached to it. I'm invested in it. In other words, it injects a sense of optimism. It's bizarre that that's true. When we're angry, sometimes we have a, an odd sense of optimism where it's like, 
I can do something about this. That's why so often when in a revolution that there's this anger that gets channeled into, but now we're going to do something about it. It's the same thing that can charge into a protest when a protest is done well, not when it's done destructively. So that's a perfect example of what the Dalai Lama, by the way, was saying when he said, you know, anger done right is like a response that is proportional to the situation. So when you see looting and protests, clearly that's no longer a response that's appropriate for the situation. Just as a distinction, (laughs) I'm just saying. Uh, It protects our values and our beliefs. Again, drawing a boundary. I want to protect my value of my democracy. I value this country. I am proud of the American flag. I'm proud of what it represents. And damn it, we're not living up to it. Fix it. There's that sense of, that's I value this thing enough that I'm willing to defend it. It's a bargaining tool. So when I walked into the office and in my previous job and said, no, I want this job, that anger that I felt from thinking that perhaps I might get passed over was enough. I didn't go slamming in the door and saying, I want it, but it was enough to energize me and push me to try and negotiate. It can, and this is, I don't know how, why this was considered a good thing, except, well, so it can cover painful feelings, which can only be good if what you're trying to do is protect yourself, protect your vulnerability in a moment of feeling like you're under attack. Uh, It can push us to reach a deeper sense of self. You know, anger is energizing. And if I get angry, it's another, it's a signal to me that I need to look at something. It can lead to self-improvement. Much as with many other instances of anger, I mean, it was only my anger that got me out of the relationship I was in, and that was clearly not a good match, and then out of the state of California, and then out of so many situations that were not ideal. It pushed me to improve my life circumstances. And the final one is it enhances emotional intelligence, which circles right back around to Mark Brackett's research. He's the one, if you may recall, who wrote the book Permission to Feel. And he, he writes, and he's the one who wrote that anger is a response to an injustice versus frustration, which is a response to a blocked goal. Uh, he's an advocate for feeling not good, but for feeling everything. This was also mirrored in Glennon Doyle's memoir, Untamed, where she writes, you know, to feel, if you're feeling bad, feeling depressed, feeling angry, doesn't mean you're doing it wrong. It being adulting or living or humaning (laughs) like if you feel angry sometimes or depressed or miserable or powerless or all of these experiences that are dark and and uncomfortable that doesn't mean you're doing it wrong we've been conditioned to feel that way particularly as americans but i would go so far as to say broadly more broadly in the west because you know, one dark side of the of our capitalist system, such as it is, is that we get marketed to a lot. And a lot of what marketing uh, researchers use to try and get us to buy things is our emotions. So they'll say, if you're feeling this negative thing and you buy this commodity, you won't feel that thing anymore. And hey, I'm not, I'm not saying down with capitalism or down with democracy, but it's just that's the shadow side of it. We can get to a place where we start to just by virtue of getting inundated with messages that if you're sad, there's something wrong. So here, this is a term Glennon Doyle uses, take this easy button, drink this, eat this, buy this, wear this. It will make you better. It will make you happy. And happy means you're doing it right. But that's simply just not true. If you're happy, great. If it's coming from an authentic place, great. But if you're sad, great. That's probably a good sign 
that means you still have the capacity to feel. So I do hope that this is helpful for you as you're thinking about anger. Uh, I My hunch is that if you're listening and you are either introverted or highly sensitive or maybe even just a creative person who is curious and wanted to know more about this thing that I'm talking about in terms of sensitivity, um, if you're someone who struggles with anger, I, I just want to invite you to get curious about it and perhaps don't try and avoid it. It's an emotion I've tried to avoid or squelch or manage in such a way that I didn't express it ever. And it's only recently that I've determined it can be extremely useful so long as, once again, it's expressed with discernment and ex- expressed with compassion. It kind of brings us back to the concept of assertive communication. So you may recall from a a past podcast when I talked about effective communication strategies. There's four styles of communication. One is passive. You matter. I don't. One is aggressive. I matter. You don't. One is passive aggressive. I matter. You don't. But I'm not going to tell you that. I'm going to give you this sideways insult instead of facing it head on. And then the final one is the balanced one. Assertive. I matter and you matter. If one does not allow anger to be a part of their emotional repertoire or their emotional sphere spectrum, it's much more challenging to be assertive. Anger can help fuel assertive communication because it's what helps us to build a boundary. Brene Brown talks about boundaries and over and over again, I I use her definition. She said a boundary is simply this. It is a clear indicator of these two things. This is what's okay, and this is what's not okay. And if there's no anger in your your toolkit that you can draw from and express correctly, it's very hard to defend that boundary. You're basically turning your boundary into like beaded curtains, which is not effective. You need a door. And you need to know you can open the door, but you also need to know you can close the door. Anyway, so I do hope this was helpful. Uh, I... again, this has been something that's been challenging for me. If you want more information, you can go to my website at www.thehealthysensitive.com and uh, you can contact me directly via email, leah at thehealthysensitive.com. If ever you're interested in coaching, if this is a topic you want to get more coaching around, I always do a complimentary coaching session for anyone who's interested in, in engaging in this kind of content in a more deep way. So uh, and you can decide after that if you want to do ongoing coaching, but the first is always complimentary. So if you're just curious about it and want to do some outreach, want to reach out, please don't hesitate. Outside of that, I look forward to talking with you next week. Take care and bye. Bye.